On the episode today, we'll be interviewing a man by the name of Donnie McClurkin. Donnie is a facilitator, author, and social entrepreneur, passionate about all things not-for-profit. Originally from Australia, Donnie moved to the U.S. back in 2013, where he coordinates the Post-Growth Institute. Donnie is an affiliate professor of economics at Southern Oregon University and fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. Donnie holds a PhD in social science uh, and currently is completing his fourth book, How on Earth Our Future is Not for Profit. He does a tremendous amount of work uh, in the community, nationally, internationally, in the not-for-profit space, but that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, today we'll be talking about what he did, him and, and you know some of the, the folks that he knows here locally, what they did in response to the Almeida fire here in Southern Oregon. Immediately after the fire tore through uh, mostly the cities of Talent and Phoenix, flattening whole neighborhoods, causing total devastation, uh, there was a lot of confusion, a lot of chaos uh, as, as people were trying to get a handle on the situation. The, there were mandatory evacuations for those towns and large parts of Medford as well. A total of 40,000 people were displaced due to the mandatory evacuations. After the fire, Talent and Phoenix essentially were totally blocked off from the outside world. The different policing agencies, the municipal police, the sheriffs, and eventually the National Guard uh, blocked off Highway 99, which is the main thoroughfare, uh, and, and, and basically isolated these towns. Uh, the reasoning was the conditions were hazardous uh, and unsafe, and, and they also wanted to prevent looting, um, which did occur, unfortunately, to some degree. However, uh, there was a real lack of social services, and there were a lot of people who were stuck in Talent and Phoenix, uh, for various reasons, whether, you know, per perhaps they were disabled, elderly, uh, didn't have working vehicles, some people didn't want to leave because they knew that they wouldn't be allowed back in, and they wanted to protect their homes, um, a whole number of reasons. So, so, so there was a lot of people in there still, and these people were cut off from the outside world. They uh, were running out of water, there was no running water, there was no electricity, uh, you know, non-perishable food items were scarce. Uh, fuel, they had no access to, to fuel. All the gas stations were closed uh, for, so they couldn't get uh, fuel for things like generators, vehicles, very necessary stuff. So what happened is that in, in response to this, you know, all vehicular traffic was prohibited. Donnie ended up organizing what he later called the Ashland Bike Brigade, which essentially was a group of a tremendous number of volunteers who were cycling in resources to the community, water, food, sanitary supplies, hygienic supplies, and, uh, and basically uh, became the social service first responders. Here's Donnie, the man himself. Well, let me start with some just yeah, yeah. nice yeah. introductory questions. Uh, what what brought you to the Rogue Valley originally? 
Uh, originally, I fell in love with a woman um, online and moved here uh, eight years ago almost. And uh, yeah, been here ever since. All right, love. Yeah, that's probably the, the best, best thing that can bring you anywhere. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, the, I guess the impetus for, for this interview, I mean, you do so much amazing work um, here locally and really all around the globe with your books and the Post-Growth Institute and all the really cool stuff you do at the not-for-profit world. But um, the uh, the thing that, that I guess kind of inspired this interview and, and this podcast ultimately was the Almeda Fire here. Um, and, you know, uh, you helped organize uh, what you guys have called the Ashland Bike Brigade. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit about that and how that started and what that is? Absolutely. So, you know, the fire rolled in that afternoon. I think it was a, a Tuesday afternoon, yep. maybe. Yep, Tuesday. And 7 a.m. Wednesday, I was thinking, all right, uh, how am I personally going to respond? And I ride my bike everywhere. A lot of people see me sort of biking around this town. It's what I... It's how I get around. I never owned a vehicle. And so I uh, I got on my bike and knowing that the the roads were probably blocked off, but not really knowing what was out there other than some photos and a bit of video footage that I'd seen. So I went down to Almeda Road, um, or near there actually, and jumped on the bike path. And it was pretty, it was pretty crazy because apart from a couple of city council workers – were like trying to put out some embers there was no one around um, on the bike path and so I took the bike path north and I mean it was just uh, coming from Australia I've seen a lot of bushfire uh, a lot of bushfire areas after a fire has rolled through but it it struck me just how silent everything was I mean we had the freeway just over to the right hand side but there weren't many vehicles on it and so I'm just biking along this path that's got burnt trees that have fallen across it and then in other parts it, what, what struck me so much about this fire which is is really it still sticks with me is that certain sections of the bike path and indeed the communities that that surround us were were preserved while others weren't and it, there was no seemingly no rhyme or reason to that so I'm I'm riding along this path and in some places you can see there's crops and areas that have been preserved and you think maybe the sprinkler systems came on but in other parts it's just sort of random i hack my way through um up uh up to talent and i realize in the process there's a big blockade that's been set up so no vehicles are in or out and and i just packed a few coconut waters some some energy bars and and a few other things to take with me because I, I assumed that there were people who were going to be in talent who weren't, were maybe in shock, maybe hadn't got out, etc. Right. So I get in talent at maybe 8.30 and I immediately come off the bike path into a section where a number of my friends used to live. And there's houses still on fire actually uh, at, at 8 o'clock in the morning, 9 o'clock in the morning, whenever I was there. There's three houses down by the the um, by by Bear Creek that are that are on fire, and there's this guy with a a hose just trying to you know put them out. There's not many people around, like and a then, garden hose. So there's a, a garden hose, yeah. yeah. And then he, I, I talked to him, and he says, you know, it, it's lost. Like there's nothing more I can do. I've taken everything out, and 
you know, it's just people who are visibly in shock. But outside of this little street, it's flattened. Yeah. Right. There's maybe there's maybe nine houses, and half of them are like half burnt to the ground, and the other half are okay. I mean, I, I remember this. I'm I'm sort of processing this as I as I share yeah, this with yeah. you because I haven't talked about it. There was this little, you know, the uh, the tiny uh, tiny libraries, like the little boxes where you've got books in them. Right. There was a tiny library that was on fire in front of this house, and it was just like, oh my god, this is just so weird. And so I backed around that street, came up the back into this area that's just flattened. And what next struck me was. The only people around were a couple of residents who were like coming back in to just assess things and the fire brigade. There wasn't anyone else around. It was like ghost town. Yeah. So I continued to bike up to Talent Avenue and get to the sort of area that, that hadn't been burnt down beyond the business district. And I just started, you know, meeting people anyone I could find and just seeing if they wanted, uh, wanted any supplies and just to you know, check in with them. And, and what became very clear very quickly was one, the water was fully off Two, the electricity was fully out and C there was this blockade that meant that certain people couldn't leave. There were some people maybe at this point were already hearing that if they left, they couldn't come back in. Yeah. So I sensed that, there was a need here. I biked back to Ashland, got back about 11 o'clock and, and put a message out on Facebook just saying, here's what I learned. If anyone wants to join me at two o'clock or something like that, I'll be, I'll be riding back North and uh, we'll be taking water in. And sure enough, eight people showed up and we, we loaded up these bikes. You know, some people had the racks on the back. I think one person had a trailer and we went in, um, and I mean, talent's got, I don't know, maybe two and a half thousand homes uh, and that were still standing. And so we said, right, let's just try to divide this up. We can't obviously with nine of us do everything, but we'll just, so we had a water carrier, one person who sort of went up and down talent as sort of the base. And then groups of us would spin off and do streets and we just would knock. And within, within two minutes, Tommy, of me heading off with a woman named Danny Leonardo to do one section of talent. I see a woman in a car that looks like it's broken down. Doors open. She's sort of just sitting there slumped in, in the front of this big Tarago. And she looks up as I sort of say, Hey, and it's like, it's like she hadn't seen someone for a year. You know, her face just wow. like lights up and she's like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. You're here. You're here. No one's been here. Like, I don't know what's going on. And, and she was dehydrated. Um, I think her car was unable to start. Like it was just crazy. Yeah. And then ironically, 20 yards from where she was sitting, we knocked on a door and this guy shows up whose wife has got some kind of disability. I'm not sure what, but she couldn't like leave. And he had no water and he was really like worried about it. So I give him all the water we've got, sell him, we'll come back tomorrow, etc. So we're going through these places and there's not many people around, but the people who've stayed, stayed because they didn't have the ability to leave. Right. And they're basically trapped in this zone where, and this is what really blows my mind. 
there's no first responders who aren't police and fire and electrical, right? They're, or gas. There's there's no there's no like social services. Yeah. Um, so I head back uh, with the group later that afternoon and just again put a call out for the next day and and then something amazing happened. Over a hundred people showed up at CrossFit uh, in Ashland here, CrossFit Inconceivable, and with their bikes and, and I get a call and this is at 10 o'clock. I get a call at nine 45. I'm still on a team meeting with my nonprofit that I'm running because we're launching a big global event three days later. And I'm trying to like balance these things. And this, my friend LeBeau Potgieter who, who runs CrossFit inconceivable and has been doing all of this work, assembling water and things like that. Yeah, yeah. He says, Donnie, you gotta get, you gotta get down here. I'm like, how come he goes, there's a hundred people here and they're like, ready to go. And if you don't go get down here soon to organize it, they're just going to start writing. And I'm like, all right. (laughs) That, that was the kind of spirit of that day. It was just everyone all in. Um, It continues to go. It looks like the bike brigade is going to ride again next weekend. um, Deliver five bicycles in from Piccadilly cycles and also uh, um, get involved with the food distribution program that uh, talent maker city and um, Ali French and others are coordinating and, Rogue Climate and Rogue Action Center involved in, and uh, and then also in a couple of weeks deliver. Um, there's a thousand soccer balls that are coming down from Portland that are going to be delivered out to families. So, um, yeah, wow. some of- you know, to clarify for you know future listeners, you guys rode your bikes in because vehicular traffic was totally shut down at this point. The sheriffs and the police were not allowing any kind of motor vehicles in or out of the city, right? Correct. In fact, for the first three days, that that was the case. After three days, we were, and I mean, this was at a point where there was extreme smoke. Uh, you, you may recall at that point, like yeah, Ta- hazardous, like, incredibly hazardous. Hazardous, yeah. yeah. Um, so it was sort of crazy on all fronts. But they, after three days, we realized we couldn't keep cycling in, and luckily they let us get a truck in. We built a relationship with them, and Derek Sherrill, who worked with the fire brigade in talent had a relationship with us and helped navigate that. So we were able to get things like generators, um, more water into the drop-off points in particular at, uh, at the makeshift rogue action center, which itself had burnt down. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I'd never thought that bikes would be the, the way in, <laughs> but they actually, they actually proved a really effective way to galvanize interest and support. Um, and actually, you know, bikes are a really great versatile um, mode of transport because we can easily duck around, for example, fallen power lines. Yeah. Right. In vehicles can't often, and so we were able to sort of weave in between things, and like I said, on the bike path, get get through places that uh, that obviously vehicles couldn't. So, yeah, that was that was why the bikes. That's uh, yeah. That's. <laughs> It's such an amazing story, man. It's I, I was telling one of my friends about it. He was really bummed about the fires and all sorts of stuff happening in the world. And he was like, "Tell me something, tell me something that's going to cheer me up," you know? Because I, I just I'm not. I was like, "Well, here's a crazy story." <laughs> I told him about that, and that honestly, that conversation was what helped inspire this podcast. Was there's so much crazy pretty terrible stuff happening in the world but there's also a lot of amazing things happening and amazing people uh really like coming together and doing some super cool stuff uh and so yeah i mean thank you for being for being you (laughs) number one 
pretty inspiring dude. Um, how was it for you? Cause so I went in with LeBeau on Friday, I think, uh, on that water, water, the first water delivery when we first got those two trucks in. And, oh, sweet. I didn't realize. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, um, how has it been for you guys, at least in those early days, coordinating with the authorities? Because it seemed to me that day that communication and coordination between the actual, you know, first responder organizations, the sheriffs and the fire departments and, and the police was, was pretty terrible. Like they weren't communicating, they weren't coordinating. And um, there was a real need, which which the bike brigade and, and, and the community volunteers were going out and filling. What, what was your experience with that? In all honesty, um, I didn't even think to think about it when I went in. Well, maybe that's not true. I'm of the opinion that, and maybe this is inappropriate, I mean, because I do respect there are times when law enforcement and emergency services you know, make calls uh, on things that are important for the safety of individuals who don't have that experience. And I, I'd done a little work, um, you know, started to the process of becoming a volunteer firefighter in Australia, and I'm, I'm familiar with some of that emergency services piece. But I guess, in, in all honesty, Tommy, I was under the impression that, look, these things get bureaucratically shut down pretty quickly, and I just, I just had a gut feeling that we needed to get in there. And so, in reality, I didn't even check in with any law enforcement. Yeah. I was under the impression that if I did that, they were going to have to play the book and say, look, you can't get in there. Yeah. So when we took eight, um, eight extra riders in that Wednesday afternoon, I just showed them the way that we were going to go around so that we didn't even cross the main road at the junction um, to get in the way of, of traffic. So in other words, they couldn't suggest to us that we're any interruption even to traffic. Yeah. And so we ended up doing like this big ass loop that... Uh, <laughs> added an extra three or four minutes onto the trip, but to get literally five yards across a road. Um, and that was, that was fine. But whenever we hit these points, wherever there was PD, um, you know, other law enforcement, my approach was to always just wave and to say, Hey, uh, and to actually pull them over and to like signal them and then to just talk and say, Hey, we're here with this group, etc." And this is the piece that I did not expect and I'd forgotten about it until we're talking about it now, and that is people in talent. It makes sense in the current, in the understanding of what's happening in Portland and BLM and, uh, and what's being stoked nationally. Yeah. Many people thought, according to PD and to others on, on social media, many people thought that us bikes coming in were to loot. So... What we did was I encouraged everyone, once I knew that, to just smile, to wave, to like give a signal um, to people that we were coming in with a friendly intent, to always knock and step back from doors, um, you know, just basic things here to announce who we're, who we're with and that we're volunteers, to use the word volunteers. Yeah. And I think within, you know, within the first few hours of, of, uh, of our activities, that word got around and people started to feel relaxed and they saw us. And I think the problem was that prior to that, there were some people looting on bicycles. When I went in that very first morning, I noticed that the drugstore, for example, had a smashed uh, window, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I asked people about that and they said, yeah, people were on bicycles uh, riding around and, uh, 
and uh, getting stuck into things. So that's an interesting dynamic, and particularly at this time in history. But I think at the end of the day, when you smile, when you connect, when you say things like, I'm a volunteer, um, and people see you, I also said to them, make sure that when you're approaching people, like even if you've got a bike and you've got a backpack with water in it, Make sure you've got a water bottle in your hand as you ride. And that way, when people see you, they'll see you're like, got something you can reach out and you can put the bottle out towards them, like as an offering. Yeah. And it totally changes the dynamic versus <laughs> someone on a bike with a backpack saying, hey, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah hey, who are you kind of thing. Right, right. Wow. Um, so we've talked a lot about the immediate aftermath of the fire and your guys, you know, I mean, you guys were basically first responders in that situation, in my mind, um, volunteer, but you know, you're some of the first people to get out there and, and, and provide, uh, emergency relief. We all know this is going to be a tremendously long rebuild. Uh, and it's, it's, everyone's going to be in it for the long haul. And, and I know that you have been involved in uh, a lot of these conversations moving forward about, Hey, how are we going to, uh, continue to work, continue to build, continue to take this energy moving forward to rebuild our communities? Um, what, what are some of the projects that you guys are working on moving forward? And, and how can, and how can people help you with those? Yeah, so I'm involved with uh, a project called Mivayami Hogar, uh, My Valley, My Home, which is specifically focused on Latinx families. Uh, our intention is to have 500 homes uh, built, which they will have uh, an ownership stake, if not full ownership stake, preferably on land that is held in not-for-profit trust, so that two, three, four, five years down the track, we have a better circumstance than what happened before this fire where, as I've come to discover all too well and is understandable also in a capitalist system, you have people who lost their homes that had bought their homes on credit card if they had been able to even uh, buy their homes. And they were then paying seven, $800 rent for a manufactured home, for a mobile home in a park that's now burned down. And there's questions about whether or not their home is even, um, there's any compensation for insurance. Right. And there's pressure to shift over the title on these. Places. I mean, the last thing we want is for people who've now had job pressures, potentially might be undocumented and have extreme difficulties in engaging with any kind of services without putting a past citizenship in jeopardy to then a year or two from now move into a place without any money, without you know the advantage of the, of, of the next few years of having stable uh, place to live from which to work, et cetera, et cetera, then getting slapped with extremely high rental uh, costs or, uh, and or a mortgage. So we're essentially looking at how do we use this devastating experience to create a more just future. And the way we're doing that is we're running uh, listening circles to ensure that whatever gets built is really centering the strengths and the needs of the communities most affected. 
we're running coordinating calls for partners and there's gosh i mean it's ballooning out it'll probably be 250 different partners uh, wow. in here. everything from government agencies to nonprofits that work with uh, affected families to um the uh, regulators to the landowners to people who want to make donations of things like rbs etc um all on these calls to really coordinate and streamline the activities. Then our focus is going to be on the long-term build, but we're also interested in helping with a centralized database to ensure that the resources need for the short-term transitional uh, opportunities. So, for example, if people are being put into an RV or a container home, um, these sorts of things, that, that it's done in a coordinated way. And then... Alongside this, the Bike Brigade merged with uh, an initiative called Rogue Volunteers Initiative, and essentially we're looking at that coming under the My Valley, My Home project to offer an opportunity for volunteers to support this transition process, whether that's delivering things to families in need, helping out with materials, supply delivery drops to various sites. Maybe it'll be involved in aspects of the cleanup that FEMA uh, if, if FEMA doesn't get involved or even if FEMA does. So there's all of these opportunities for people to volunteer. Uh, we have a fund set up through uh, the Mackenzie River Gathering uh, Foundation uh, website, and I can put that link in uh, for you to share with, with others who are interested. Yeah, yeah. But you're right, Tommy, it's, it's a long, t- I mean, in my opinion, this is five to ten years. Yeah. Right. And this is on top of, on top of COVID, on top of economic crises, and knowing that over the next five to ten years, we could have more fires, we could have an earthquake, we could have all sorts of challenges that pop up both locally all the way through to globally. Not could, will, will have those things. And so I'm interested in how do we create buy-in, both literally and figuratively, so that two years from now, people feel a sense of ownership and pride over this activity so that they're still involved, still engaged, still helping out, rather than just what typically happens with... I heard the stat that a year after the Paradise Fires, 50 people, uh, 50% of people who lost their homes never came back, and only 11 homes had been rebuilt. Wow. I mean, cleanup takes a long time, that's for sure, but we, we have people who are living in vehicles right now, in cars we have a lot of people who are camping out we have people with family members and and those arrangements put a lot of uh, a lot of stress on families we need both short-term medium-term and long-term responses to this that are coordinated but in doing so we need to be very careful that we're not being the saviors who've got the ideas of how that should look and that's why we are ensuring we're we're seeing this through an equity lens that centers the perspectives of those in need. We jump on calls regularly to hear about what daily life is like for individuals who've been affected and their families. And we're going to continue to use that to ensure that the design of the build, the rebuild projects are appropriate to those needs. That's awesome, man. That's uh, yeah, that's pretty amazing. It's, it's a, it's great to hear that that you guys are focusing uh, a lot of your efforts on on helping the the Latinx community here. Uh, something that you know listeners might not know, 
the fire disproportionately affected poor people and and mostly people living in mobile home parks, uh, which were generally right along the freeway, which was the corridor that the fire ripped ripped down. And those homes, I don't think you can qualify for homeowners insurance. So it turns out you you can get insurance uh, for your mobile home. It's called mobile home insurance, or uh, also known as manufactured home insurance. It's much like homeowner's insurance in the sense that it provides financial protection in the event your home is damaged. However, uh, it is true that most of these folks in these mobile home parks were impoverished. They probably did not have the best policies, uh, if they had policies at all. You know, there's a lot of families that live there, a lot of uh, poor people, and, and those are the folks with, with the least access to help from government agencies and, uh, and and really with the most need. So, yeah, that's great. That's great to hear you guys uh, focusing on that. That's a, that's a real need. And, and are there some, I mean, are there some inspiring stories come out, coming out of that already, or is it, you know, maybe too too soon? Well, say. I mean, it sounds cliche, but every time that our team gets on calls to hear the stories of individuals affected from the Latinx community, I find that we are all collectively just blown away by the the resilience, the way that these folk are, are so grateful that people are caring about them. Um, and I'm careful, I want to be careful in the way that I say that because part of my own work in strengths-based and asset-based community development is to ensure that the power dynamics associated with any projects like this are very carefully considered. The, it can be very damaging for communities to develop a relationship of we're offering this and you're needing this. Uh, in fact, there was a, a comment made on a, on a call recently where someone talked about the neediness of these families and then immediately stopped themselves and said, sorry, let me just correct that, um, that these are families in need. And there's an important difference there because the, what I get from being on these calls is the strength and the resources of the networks that these individuals have, the uh, familial relationships, the fact that people continue to work despite the fact that their three kids uh, and their, their partner are, are, uh, are displaced, you know, yeah. many of them have lost, uh, one of them have lost jobs and, and, and there's a lot of rent gouging that's happening in, in Medford and elsewhere where really? you know, prices are being jacked up. And so these people are, are wondering, how do I survive? But despite that, they're spending time to jump on calls to educate us about their circumstance, um, to, to help us understand things better. And that to me, I mean, I'm not going to, it's, it, it wouldn't be appropriate for me to share the names of these people, given right, the, right. the, the safety. But this, like, there's been a couple of men, a couple of women who've just poured out their hearts with the deepest gratitude and highlighted that it's hard, particularly hard culturally, for people within the Latinx communities in the valley to ask for help. And so the vulnerability that I've seen from people saying, "Yes, we need support. How am I going to get my son through?" Um, through his final years of high school, you know, I was hoping he was going to college. And how do I, um, how do I find the two thousand dollars a month for rent in a place where my family is being told that because I have two daughters and a, and a son, that they need to be in separate rooms in a rental? You know, like these sorts of real struggles that then mean we need to think about 
the size of the homes that we're looking to rebuild, where they're where they are in situation to people's jobs in terms of access to public transport, in terms of access to um, parks and things that make for a good life uh, for their kids, all sorts of things, right? Access to uh, to local stores, etc. So a lot of people have lost their vehicles. How do we support um, individuals that don't have the ability to, to move around right now? And that's where um, the long-term, short-term housing project that Sylvia Parayo and um, uh, Candace Youngens, Tia uh, Leidafai, have been working on is so important. There, there are people who are currently with groups like working with groups like Unite, delivering cash to individuals, gift cards and cash to ensure that people have the ability to meet their immediate needs. And that, I mean, we've seen a huge amount of money that's been distributed in that way on the ground through relationship building, through conversation, through existing contacts. And, and those are real stories of, of hope because that's, that's, to be honest, and without wanting to be melodramatic, that's close to life and death stuff. You know, when your kids can't get fed, your mental health depreciates, like the stress that people are under, that gets, that gets to the point where people have accidents and all sorts of things happen if, if those situations aren't ameliorated. So I've been really inspired by the way that the sensitive way that people have responded to the needs um, in culturally sensitive and culturally appropriate ways. Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's a, it's a lot. Some great stories. <laughs> it's a lot. Um, so Last question here, um, you know, in times of stress, like earning your PhD or when wildfires rip through your community, uh, what do you do for uh, your own self-care, Donnie? Because we all know that uh, it's easy to get consumed in our work and overwork ourselves, burn ourselves out. Self-care, absolutely uh, important. What are, the, some, what are some of the things that you like to do? Six years ago, I spent $10 and bought online a Swedish healing mat, which is 8,000 little pins, <laughs> like plastic kind of pins that um, are on the mat that you lie down on, and it just chills you out, um, relaxes your body, and, and, and promotes circulation. So I get on my Swedish healing mat every day. <laughs> it's like best. Best $10 I ever spent. Um, I keep exercising. Uh, I try to keep breathing, keep eating healthily, you know, the, the usual things. Sleep's difficult, but um, trying to keep a regular routine. I, I've i actually removed uh, the Facebook app from my phone, so I just use it when I log in on my, on my laptop. That, that's helpful. I spent a lot of time processing emotionally with friends. Every day I have check-ins. I, I check in on people and we just have that time. Last evening, you know, despite the to-do list being as long as ever, I probably spent three hours just listening on calls with, with friends. Mm. And, and particularly connecting with other friends who are going through similar circumstances or involved in the same work so that we can empathize from a space of, of that shared understanding. Yeah. 
and uh, and I I actually got my first mas- massage uh, massage uh, in six months a couple of days ago. There was this really great generous offer from uh, a gentleman named Daniel, who came by a friend of a friend who said, "Look, for anyone who's been working voluntarily in this space, uh, I'm offering fifty percent off." And so. I took him up on the offer, got a two hour massage and that like, that just really, really, really helped. I fell asleep for most of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I've also hit burnout two times in the last three weeks. Like I, I'm currently suffering from what I self-diagnose as an Epstein-Barr virus uh, flare up. And I know a lot of others in, in this space are dealing with autoimmune challenges. When I say this space, I mean, activisty, um, you know, political advocacy, social justice kind of work. Yeah. It's it's relentless. It's relentless. Yeah. And so, I take a lot of multivitamins. Um, and the the challenge of this virus has been that there are times during the day where I cannot get up physically without huge, huge amounts of effort. And so then, unfortunately, what I what I've been forced to do because it's just there's just so many things that need to get done, like the urgent, important stuff. I just end up lying down and working lying down. <laughs> so, and I've, I've worked through two stages, two massive stages of burnout this year um, where I've just been knocked out, very physically ill. That happened again two weeks ago. After all the smoke, I was I was sick for a few days, but... And I don't know if this is an appropriate analogy at all. In fact, it's probably inappropriate. (laughs) But I think of like single mothers, right? Single mothers with a few kids who they don't have the luxury of having time off. And I'm in a circumstance of much greater privilege than that. But there's an aspect of this where there's not the luxury for a lot of people who are working right now at the coalface to have time off. There just isn't, we need, we know we need to take it. We know that burnout doesn't benefit anyone, but there's also the reality that we're going through collapse and in going through collapse, we adapt um, in ways that as leaders or community organizers, we develop increasing capacity to, to handle stress unconsciously. I'm sure it keeps adding up. So it's problematic. But the truth is, I just see myself able to work harder and harder, knowing that I need to also rest more and more. But it's this interesting paradox, right? It it can't be just the whole end of the spectrum where people say, make sure you're looking after yourself, you know, rest, etc. It's like, yep, need to do that, need to do that more. And at this other end, look, if people don't step up more and more, then it's going to be on certain people's shoulders to help lead. I think as a culture, we struggle with with leadership capability in terms of lots of intention, lots of people wanting to help, maybe not the most culturally developed skills in terms of how to lead collaboratively, how to lead dynamically, how to lead in a way that isn't controlling these sorts of things. And so given that's something that you and I have worked on previously together in terms of how we lead in a, in a purpose-driven way, you're familiar with, with, with the fact that it's something cultivated it's, it's it's something you have to experience and develop and the muscles that you have to build yep. and i think we're still learning how to do that so those of us who are have been on that journey longer we've got important roles here to build that capacity through this process because as mentioned it's it's going to continue to cascade and 
And we need to know how to galvanize people from a space of acknowledging and, and recognizing their strengths. That gives people the hope to be able to move through the challenges that we're going to continue to face. Well, that's a, that's a great note to end on, Donnie. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, Tommy. Always good to see you, Ed. And, uh, and for listeners who, um, who maybe don't know Tommy in- intimately, this is also a man who steps up in his community all the time and, uh, and has a lot of important things to continue sharing with this world. So I'm so glad to be on this podcast, and, uh, and I wish you all the success, and you, Tommy, as well, with, uh, with what you're doing. Thank you so much. Donnie, thank you for being with us today. That was our special guest, Donnie McClurkin. To support the work that he's doing, visit myvalleymyhome.org, an organization whose mission it is to support up to 500 Latinx families displaced by the Almeida Fire by securing high-quality, sustainable homes that they own in locations that are conducive to their personal and collective well-being. Community Talk was produced by Justin Silva, Austin Roberts, and myself, with the help of Max Goldman, our creative consultant. I'm your host, Tommy Letchworth, and if you like what you heard, subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. Find us on Facebook at Community Talk with Tommy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This episode of Community Talk with Tommy is brought to you by... Raking Leaves Forest Maintenance. The biggest issue with forests in Southern Oregon may not be what you think. Leaves are a constant nuisance in our forest and cannot be ignored. Luckily, Raking Leaves Forest Maintenance is on the job. With several million acres to cover, Raking Leaves Forest Maintenance sweeps through each acre, ridding Southern Oregon of this prevalent problem. We cannot leave this matter lying on the ground. Please consider making a donation. Raking Leaves Forest Maintenance is a nonprofit organization. Visit www.gettheleafoutofhere.org to contribute and learn more.